you take your Bibles and join with me, please, we're headed to Luke chapter 23. Luke chapter 23, as we pick up just for this week and next week, a series I want to talk about, the sayings of Jesus Christ. If you don't have sermon notes out of the bulletin, the ushers have some, just hold up your hand, they'll hand it to you so you can follow along a little bit better. What we're talking about is famous last words. In fact, there are a lot of different clips that if you went on the internet, you'd find famous last words. Some of them are designed to be a little bit humorous. Hey, Ma, look at me, right with the shark behind them. Or you have this one, you know, watch me do this as he jumps between the cliffs and probably misses. Trust me, I do this all the time, she says, standing by the bison. Or this one, here, kitty, 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 kitty. Doesn't work so well. Okay, smile, show me your teeth right before the shark opens them up. Or this one, hey guys, watch this and wipe out. Or you have this one, what happens if I press this button? We hope the Trump doesn't do that, okay? That, that doesn't take place. Or you have this one. Here's a general, true story, Erskine. He uh, was inebriated one night. That's for those who don't, he got drunk. Uh, jumps out the window in his building in Portugal and land, went several floors down. And when it was all done and they were picking him up, he said, why did I do that? That's a good question. Okay? Famous last words of a fellow who was a general, uh, Sedgwick in the Union Army, told his fellows, he says, don't worry about those Confederates. They couldn't hit an elephant at this distance. That was right before the sharpshooter got him. Same thing happened to a fellow. His name is Saki. He was in the British Infantry of World War II, an officer. He said to a fellow officer there when they were in the French trenches, he said, put that match out. Don't light it up. Don't even start lighting it. The guy was starting to light it up. He said, don't light it up. He says, those German snipers, they'll see it and they'll get one of us. Well, the German sniper never saw the match, but he heard the voice. He tracked on the voice and got him. Sometimes it happens in the spiritual realm that people make some statements that are really, really, really sad statements. Voltaire, who was an, an atheist denying Christ, on his deathbed, he was asked by his priest to renounce Satan. His response was this, now, now, my good man, why this isn't the time to make enemies. Ooh, ought not, he's going to spend time with Satan for all eternity, I guess. Or you have this. Any of you ever hear of this actress? Okay, She was... Um, not the nicest of ladies, put it that way. She is on her deathbed. Her, her uh, housekeeper kneels down to pray for her as she is expiring. She says, don't you dare ask God to help me. Some people have some really heinous statements at their last, uh, at their last breath. We want to look at somebody in his last hours who had some of the most phenomenal, encouraging deep messages sent from heaven, the words of Jesus Christ. We've studied this before. There's been several times over the years that you've studied the, the different words of Christ. This morning I'd just like to take a few minutes and cover just a couple. Tonight a few more of them. And then next Sunday also as well. We're in Luke 23. And I'm going to jump ahead in the passage from what I posted up here. I'm jumping down to verse 33. In Luke 23, down in verse 33, and read the section where Jesus is on the cross, which we are going to be marking and celebrating this Good Friday and next weekend. But we read in verse 33, and when they were come to a place which is called Calvary, there they crucified him and the malefactors, one on the right hand, the other on the left. Then said Jesus, Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. And they, the Roman soldiers, parted his raiment and cast lots. And the people stood beholding, and the rulers also with them, deriding him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if he be the Christ, the chosen of God. And the soldiers also mocked him, coming to him and offering him vinegar, and saying, If you be a king of the Jews, save yourself. And the superscription, the plaque also, was written over him, hung on the cross in the letters of the Greek, the Latin, and Hebrew, and said, This is the king of the Jews." 
And one of the malefactors or thieves which were hanged railed on him saying, If you be Christ, save yourself and us. But the other answering rebuked him saying, Do you not fear God, seeing you are in the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we received the due reward of our deeds. But this man, he's done nothing amiss or wrong. And he said unto Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into the kingdom. And Jesus said, Verily I say unto you, Today shall you be with me in paradise. And it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth, until about the ninth hour. And the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was rent in the midst. And when Jesus had cried with a loud voice, he said, Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. And having said thus, he gave up the ghost. Now taking just the words of Christ and looking at just a few of them from this text, there's more in other texts. It is amazing that he spoke with such kindness and with such charity despite the torture that he was experiencing at that moment. If you studied anything and read anything about the crucifixions, you know they weren't unique to the time of Christ. They started years before. They started with different ancient groups that devised this idea because they're gods of the earth. They didn't want them tainted with a criminal's body being soiled. So they elevated the people and put them on posts, put them on crosses as we know them, put them on X's, and they lifted the criminal from the ground so that he wouldn't taint the ground of their gods. As time went by, different groups polished this up and improved upon it. They started beating the peoples who were going to the cross beforehand. Some of them started like the Phoenicians, started the idea of, of crucifying people in, the, in their nakedness so that they would shame them before others. Well, the Romans come along in time. And the Romans, they improve upon it all and they become the experts in crucifying individuals where they would torture them and their whole goal was to make this a long-lasting, drawn-out affair where the person basically died from exposure or from suffocation. Now, in Jesus' case, they did it on that Good Friday afternoon, and so they had to get the bodies off the cross. There was a time frame. They had to get them out before Passover started because of their location, because they were there at that city, and, they wanted, and Pilate didn't want a riot to, be, uh, you know, to happen again, since there's been several riots in the last few years under his leadership, and so he wanted to, to make sure that they get these bodies off, so they have to speed the process up. Otherwise, they could hang on this cross for several days. And die of exposure, die basically, many of them, from suffocation. They'd be hanging on the cross. They have that little footrest that you often see. In order to breathe as your body hangs, you have to push yourself up in order to take a breath. And so people oftentimes just died from exhaustion, from suffocation. Horrible, horrible. It was all designed to, you know, to scare people, to make people obey the government, to avoid criminal activity. And they got really good at it. Now Jesus... Part of his torture, the extent of it is there's six hours. We read of three hours where there was the total darkness. But there's a period of about six hours that he's on the cross. And during that lengthy time, such excruciating pain. And remember, he's already been beaten. He's already been whipped. He's been given that cat of nine tails, the 40 lashes minus one, where most men expired. They died because of the loss of blood. Jesus didn't. He survived that. Now he's on the cross. His back has been beaten and bloodied and bruised. And in order to get a breath, he has to rub up and down with that back as, as exposed, the muscles, as exposed as they are. With the pain and the agony of the crown of thorns, there in his nakedness, exposed to everybody, with the shame of the cross hanging between criminals, and he speaks kind words. He speaks loving words. 
Jesus Christ spoke several different statements. One of those, that's one of the first that is recorded, is when he first hangs on the cross and he says, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Now there's several different factors about this one statement that we want to just remind you. I don't have time to develop fully. But I want to remind you that this was a prophecy. This was given that he would speak with kindness, asking for forgiveness. Some 740 years before Christ is on the cross, Isaiah predicted that he would be there hanging on the cross between malefactors and that he would ask and make intercession for them to be forgiven as well as the others involved. So his statement is a follow-up of Scripture. As we go through the words that he said, this may sound odd to you, but this is an unusual statement for Jesus Christ. Well, by that I mean this. I, I know that there's passages where he's already asked and given forgiveness to individuals. We can run back all the way to Luke 7. The woman who comes in and she's anointing his feet, his head. The woman who is a, called a sinful woman. And he makes the comment, he says to the woman that her sins, which are many, have been forgiven. That he's forgiven her. That he's extended the forgiveness to her because she loved much and so he responds and he says it very clearly to this woman. He says, your sins are forgiven. So in the past, he's, he stated, I forgive sins. Do you remember another passage where he did this? When in the Gospel of Matthew, there's the man whose friends let him down through the tiles of the roof and he's there, this palsied man. And Jesus says to the man who is there, he says, your sins are forgiven. They ask, who can forgive such sins? How can he say that? And so Jesus says, well, is it easier to say for sins are forgiven or arise and walk? I say to you, man, get up and walk. The man who's never walked gets up and takes his bed with him and walks out of there. Jesus is proving he can forgive sins. And so there's multiple occasions where he has stated the reason it is unusual for Jesus to in, in this time on the cross is this time he isn't saying I forgive your sins. This time he is asking God the Father to forgive the sins. He isn't doing it directly. Why? Because while he's on the cross he is becoming sin for us. And so he is going to experience a separation from the Father where he has to call upon the Father to forgive them. We notice something else that this is a statement that Luke doesn't give you in our English clarity, but it is this way in the original language. He didn't say it once. He said it multiple times, many times initially on the cross. Father, Father, forgive them. Father, time and time again, crying out, while others are deriding him and mocking him and, and, and cursing him, he is saying, Father, Father, forgive them over and over and over again. There's something else about this. It is given not only to show us his compassion, but the text records for us in Peter the idea that Jesus' suffering on the cross were for an example for us. In Peter's epistle, he writes and he says that he was suffering, leaving us an example who while he was suffering, there was no guile in his mouth. There was no revenge in his mouth. And so the cross for the believer not only provides entryway into heaven and a proof and an opportunity for salvation, but it leaves for us how to respond in the middle of our trials. How to react when somebody is mistreating us. How to react to somebody or some circumstance when we are facing difficult moments. Based on that, what we know is about Jesus is this. Jesus practiced what he preached. I say that because in Matthew, in his Sermon on the Mount, he said that when you are attacked, when you are put down, when you others will, will strike against you, pray for them. Do not curse them. 
Do not seek revenge. In fact, he said, uh, let, he says, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, pray for them that despitefully use you and persecute you. He preached it. He practiced it at the moment when it was the most difficult in his life. As he was in pain and in agony, brought on by these people, he is praying for them. He is blessing his enemy. He is forgiving them. It also shows us, and as an example, not only to be careful that we're practicing what we preach, but that we should respond to any and every trial through prayer. That should be our reaction. That when we are suffering, when we are in pain, that we would pray over and over again. That we would realize that the Lord is still near us, that this trial, this difficulty, isn't because God is against us, but God is working, doing His task, doing His work, to bring glory to Himself like He did through the death of Jesus Christ. And so when the trials come into our life, how do you respond? What do you say? Are the words gracious and forgiving, or are they cuss words and angry? Do you strike out, or do you seek out to show compassion to others? In the text, we would learn this. We would learn that we're supposed to respond, especially to those who would hurt us, in the way that Jesus responded. Those who would attack us, those who would, would do us harm, we should pray for them. Oh, that's hard at times, isn't it? It's hard to, to, at times to when somebody attacks you, attacks your kids. When somebody says something against you, they spread some gossip, they spread some, some lie about you at work, at school. It would be easier to respond by spreading a lie back, by striking out. When somebody, when somebody gets angry with you and curses you, it'd be easier to get angry and to curse back. But the believer who is following the example of Jesus Christ realizes that we are to respond in a higher, more godly, more Christ-like, more glorifying way than to give in to our flesh. We're supposed to pray. We're supposed to be kind, Jesus Christ, humiliated. Just put yourself in, in, in his spot for a moment. Pain and agony, shamed by hanging on this cross, lied about in court. All your friends have deserted you. They have left you. Though they said they would die with you, they're all gone. They've all left during that night. Your bestest of friends who said that he would, he would go to the cross with you, he denied you three times. You have been betrayed, you have been, you have been beaten, and now you're hanging there, shamefully hanging there. No clothes, no friends. The only ones there that show any sympathy, your mom and another friend who's come back from betrayal, they're there. Wouldn't you feel like just giving up? Wouldn't you feel like just giving in and just saying, that's it, I've had it? And if you had the power within your, within your ability to say, damn you. Cursings on all of you. Death to you. That's not what he does. He doesn't respond that way. There is no revenge from his lips. There is no cursing against his enemies. Do you remember the story in the Old Testament? Ahithophel. You, you probably overread and never noticed him. Ahithophel is a friend of King David's. He's David's, one of his best advisors for years and years and years and years. Doing great. But all of a sudden, David's son, Absalom, comes on the scene and Absalom says, I'm going to overthrow the kingdom. As he begins to overthrow the kingdom, 
Ahithophel leaves David's court, joins up with Absalom. He betrays David, who he's been his chief counsel for years and years and years. How is it? How is it that he all of a sudden turned on David? You got to go back in the story. Do you remember David had an illicit affair with Bathsheba years before? Ahithophel is Bathsheba's grandfather. You don't think grandpa held a grudge against David? And the first opportunity he gets, he's going to get back at David? That's the way it normally works. Revenge is a normal, is a normal response that most of us, we, we don't have the ability to take it out, but we think it. We, we, we would like to strike back, but not Jesus. Jesus, in his silence, never prays, get them all. In his silence, he never prays, you know, strike them dead. He prays for mercy. He prays for blessings upon his enemies. In fact, while he's on the cross, he's not concerned about them get, you know, getting, getting to feel pain and agony like he feels pain and agony. He's concerned that they experience forgiveness. Forgiveness after they're treating him so poorly. Forgiveness for all that they have done. That's his prayer. Not just once, because it's the right thing to do. Not just twice, but repeatedly, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Let them have your mercy. Let them have your blessing. I, 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 they've treated me horribly, but I'm not striking out, striking back. It's amazing. And uh, we would go back to scriptures and say, okay, what's, there's a lesson here. There's a big lesson, but the simple lesson is we're to be Christ-like to the people who offend, the people who strike out, the people who hurt. And instead, we're supposed to respond like Christ to the different difficulties that we face. Even when we are hurting and in pain, we're to be gracious. We're to be kind. We're to be compassionate. We're to be caring. This is not to be unique to Jesus Christ. And you say, but that was, he could do that. He was God. Listen, you can do the same. In Acts 7, we have one of his, one of his disciples who is a first martyr, he prays a similar prayer, Father, forgive them. It is possible for believers to have and to follow the example of Jesus Christ in this regards. But there's a bigger story here. The bigger story is that when Jesus is praying this simple prayer, Father, forgive them, he is addressing our biggest needs. Oh, we got lots of them. We can list out all the things we need. I need this. When my kids were little, we'd go in the store. It was amazing how many things they needed that were on the shelf. And we would often say, do you need it or do you want it? And their response after a while was, I need it. No, 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 you want. No, I need it. We all think that way. We need the car. We need the games. We need the cell phone. We need the bank account. We need this. We need that. We need this. And and a lot of them are legitimate needs. I I don't mean to say that, that those things are wrong. But we've got lots of needs. Jesus is hanging on the cross. He's in his last hours and he says, the thing that many people don't, need, don't know they need, it is this. They need forgiveness. They need rescue from their sin. They are a dying and lost world because the Bible says all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Not me, not you. We are included in that group. That if we get the wages of what we deserve, the wages for our sin, if we get the payment for our sin, that is what? 
life in heaven? No. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus is so concerned that we would be separated from the Father for all eternity. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Because he knows that without forgiveness, they are not being allowed into heaven. None of us can get into heaven unless we are cleansed by, from our sin. How do you get that? Not by a church baptism, not by a preacher, not by a priest, not by a denomination, not by giving money, not by being good, not by good looks, not by having a full head of hair, praise God. Okay? Not by anything we do. It is only by Jesus Christ pleading our case and our cause. It is through him. And he says, Father, forgive them. Forgive them. I want them to be forgiven. Now, some would jump into this text and they say, see, that proves. That proves that we're not going to be held accountable. Because as long as we do something that we're not aware of, then we're not held responsible. Because forgive them for they know, what's the passage say? What's it say? They know not what they do. So, Father, God's going to forgive them. He's praying, he's saying, okay, forgive everybody because they don't know what they're doing. And so there's, this is an argument. This is a discussion that some are preaching right now probably in our, in our country that people will be forgiven of their sins because they really don't know what is right and what is wrong. And it's basically left up to them. That is not what Jesus is saying. Jesus isn't implying that at all. In fact, ignorance of the law is no excuse. I'll give you proof of that. Go down the street today when you leave here. Go down 422 at 75 miles an hour. And you just tell them, I didn't see a speeding sign. I didn't see it. I didn't know, so you can't give me a ticket. Try that one. Okay. Have any of you, I don't raise your hands. Okay. (laughs) That you've ever said to the police officer, I didn't know. I didn't know. I didn't see the sign. Of those four tickets I've gotten, that excuse didn't work even once. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. Oh, look in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, God required sacrifice even when somebody said, I didn't know I broke one of the rules. There was a form of a sacrifice that was given that wasn't as great as somebody who intentionally broke the rules. The consequence, the sacrifice wasn't as great, but it still had to be made. Ignorance and saying, well, I didn't know that God said we weren't supposed to use his name in vain. I didn't know that I'm supposed to obey my parents. I didn't know that I was supposed to not have illicit, lustful thoughts. I didn't know that those were the rules. Well, wait a minute. There in the Old Testament was even, there was even provision that if you broke a law without knowing it, you still had to make sacrifice. In fact, let's make it quite honest. The people that are at the cross, they knew. They knew what was going on. Did Judas know he was doing wrong? Sure he did. All of his meetings with them took place at what time of the day when he met with the betrayers? It was all at night. Okay. Uh, Did Pilate know he was sending an innocent man to the cross? Yeah. And what does he do because he feels bad about it? Yeah, okay. So he knew. He knew. Did the Sanhedrin know that they had hired people to lie to give false evidence? They knew. They knew that they were breaking their own laws. They knew what, what was going on. Otherwise, they wouldn't have hired these guys to break the law. Yeah, but these, it was known. But what wasn't known, they know not what they do, isn't the idea that they don't have a clue. It's the idea they don't have an idea of the enormity of, the, of how big this is that they are rejecting Jesus Christ. Peter even refers to this later in a message. In the book of Acts, 
when he's preaching to the same crowd, and he's preaching to them weeks later, and he's saying, he says, now brethren, I know that through ignorance you did this. You cheered. Crucify him. Crucify him. We have no king but Caesar's. He says, I I know you did that. But you still need to repent. Even though you didn't know the enormity of what you were doing, you still need to repent. Because the wages of any sin, sin out of ignorance, sin out of omission, sins that are done by intent or unintent, they still need to be forgiven. And so Jesus is hanging on the cross and he's saying, Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. He is trying to meet man's greatest need. Your need, my need. It also shows me something else. It shows the great power of prayer. Jesus is on the cross. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Here's a question. Did any of these people ever repent to get forgiveness? Was his prayer answered? Oh, well, let's think about that. Do you remember one of the men who was actually involved in putting him on the cross physically? At the very end, what does the centurion say? Truly, now was that his salvation experience? I don't know. I hope to see him in heaven. Did the thief, who up to this point was mocking Jesus, did he repent? And Jesus said, today you will be with me. Okay. What about anybody else? We read in Matthew 27, when they say crucify him, let his blood be upon us and our children. We take full responsibility for it. Now, did any of those Jews who were involved, did any of them and their children repent and get forgiveness? Hmm. We go in the book of Acts. The very same audience of Jerusalem that cried against Jesus, first message, 3,000 get saved. Second message preach, 5,000 get saved. Repent. The next message, multitude gets saved. In fact, we go a little bit further into the book of Acts and a number of the priests who were actually involved with it, they believe God answered Jesus' prayer. Not immediately, not right at that moment, but in time, many of those people responded and got born again. God answers prayer like this. So there's so much here. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. There is so much in this one little phrase about attitude, response, care, concern for people around us, that you and I should grab and say, wait a minute, do I have that forgiveness? Wait a minute, do I give that forgiveness? Wait a minute, do I respond to other people who irritate me the way that Christ would have me to respond? Do I believe in praying for my enemies? Do I believe in asking for forgiveness? What what does this have to do with my life? It has tons to do with it. That it is involved with... Guys, listen here. Stop the chatter. There's another phrase. There's another phrase in the sermon. It is uh, further on where Jesus says, Truly I say unto you, today you'll be with me in paradise. It's the other one we've already referred to. Let me explore it. The thief is on the cross. The thief is there with Jesus Christ. And again, just to highlight a couple thoughts. Okay? This is spoken to the, one of the two. Just like we've already highlighted that Jesus was there in between these guys because this was predicted. He's going to be between two thieves. He's going to be between two of them. It's going to manifest or magnify his, his um, shame. His being put down. And it was a shameful thing to be cursed and put on the cross. And so here you have Jesus speaking. But there's something I never caught before. 
It's the very first part of the statement. Look at how he says it to this fellow. You read it in further down in the text where it says in verse 43, in my King James it starts off with the word verily. What do you guys have? Do you have something different in a different translation? Truly, truly, I say unto you. It is the idea that Jesus is trying to call attention. Why would he say that? Why would he say, it is really true what I'm going to say to you? Because this is going to be something so amazing, so profound, so abnormal and exceptional that the thief might not believe it. That the thief might not be able to comprehend how big and how great this is. Truly, I'm telling you something that is amazing. And he tells them a statement that is filled with all kinds of facts that are amazing facts that are beyond our imagination. Let me give them to you. He makes a statement that is phenomenal in what he says about life after death. When he says, truly you will be with me in paradise, there's a lot of comments here about life after death. Very simply, here's a fact. There is life after death. That's a truism. This man, you as an individual, he says, will still live after you die on this cross. You will still be yourself. You, you, thief, whatever your name is, you will be with me in paradise. You are going to live in paradise even though you have been a criminal all your life. Even though you don't deserve it according to other people. Even though this idea of a paradise some people say is imagination, it's not. It's a real place. Something else he's saying to this guy, and this is important. He is saying there are no detour places today. Today you'll be with me in paradise. There are, not, there are not these places that some of us grew up learning about. We were told that you go to a different place than heaven or you go to a different place than hell, that you end up you know, maybe sleeping in the ground for an extended period of time. No, nope. the Bible never talks about a purgatory. It never talks about a soul sleep. It says that when we pass from this earth, we are either in heaven, paradise, or we are in hell. That's it. No delays, no detours. That's a fact. That's an amazing fact for this man to hear about. It's amazing that he is saying, you will be with me in paradise. And for you and me to understand that part of the greatness of heaven is being with Christ, being with family, being with friends who have gone before, but being with Christ. What must this thief have thought? Now think about it. You're the thief. Early that morning you wake up on a hard stone bed. You are chained to the wall. That's your morning hour. You're given your last meal. So you have bread that might be a little bit fresher instead of totally stale. And then you go through the entire morning. You're, you're talking about, I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. Maybe you've talked with some friends, said goodbye. Maybe your family visited you. You get marched down the street. Jesus is marching. He's bloodied. He's beaten. You're, you're more, you have more stamina. Your body hasn't been tortured the way Jesus has been tortured. You get down, to, down the street, out of the city. You go to Golgotha, and there your, your nails, uh, are, the nails are put through your wrists, through your ankles. You're hanging there. And all the crowd is saying, whether you've ever met this Jesus before or not, they're saying, if you be Messiah, you've probably heard about his miracles. You've probably heard that he raised people from the dead. You've probably heard that somebody walked on water, that he fed thousands and thousands, and you're in a desperate situation. Yeah, you would cry and say, hey, get us down from here. You're, you have something in common with him. The three of you are, are the crowds against you. He's your buddy now. He's your comrade in arms. Do something for us. You got the power, do it. He does nothing. He's just praying, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. Come on, man. We don't have much time here. Do something now. If you're going to pull that rabbit out of your hat, do it now. And he doesn't. 
But you hear him time and time and time again, Father, forgive them. You see them spit on him. You see them gamble away his clothing. You see them mock. You see the, you see the high priests come. The people that are to be, to be the example of love and compassion and forgiveness. What they say is just unbelievable hatred, venom spewing out of their eyes and their mouths. He doesn't, he doesn't strike them down. Hey, buddy, shut your mouth. Something holy is going on here. We deserve this. He doesn't. And you watch him. You have words with him. You are criminal. He says, We're gonna, I'm going to take you to heaven. And in just a couple hours, they come by, they break your legs so that you have to suffocate. You can no longer push yourself up. They've got to get you off the cross before sundown. And in those final moments, you look over. He's dead. Did he mean it? Am I going to be there? Your last breath. You open your eyes and you're in glory. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. What did you do to deserve it? What grace is this? Amazing. It reveals for us some facts about getting into heaven that this guy needed to know, and so do you and I, that God wants everyone saved, and even if it comes at the last moment of their life and they call upon him to be their savior and forgiveness, he gives, that's grace. Because there are some of us in this room, we wouldn't give grace so freely after we've lived the Christian life. And we've had to go through trials. And that person, that death row inmate, they can call right before they flip the switch or push the needle in, and they can get to heaven. It's grace. It's grace. What it shows us is, what do we need to get into heaven? Well, I can guarantee based on this story, we don't need this. It's not based on a good life. It's not based on baptism. It's not based on going to church. It's not based on making reparation with people. It's not based on being a good guy and getting a bank account. Because if that's what gets people into heaven, that thief should not have been there. It's none of that. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad it's not based on how much money you give because you never know if you give enough? Aren't you glad it's not based on how much you go to church because you never know if you've gone enough? Aren't you glad it's not based upon you know, being baptized or being a good person or learning the Ten Commandments or being able to quote the Bible or your catechism? It's all grace. It's all God. It's amazing. Christ is the only way this man could get to heaven. It's the only way you and I can get to heaven. Because he says to Jesus, please, you, you remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus' response is, I will. I will. It wasn't the priest. It wasn't the temple. It wasn't the church. It was Jesus. And only Jesus. That's why he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man comes unto the Father but by me. However, all men can come unto the Father through him. And aren't you glad it includes even a thief? Oh, wait, now that's a challenge, isn't it? 
you do realize that maybe we'll be in heaven with some seedy characters. People that aren't as good as you and me. But then again, how many of us are good? There's none righteous. No, not one of us. This is really, this is what's interesting. Even bad people are allowed into heaven. I am glad that's the case. Because when I was young, I was called bad. Quite a few times. When the police called my parents and told them that they ought to put me in a reform school, that I was a bad influence on others. Can you imagine that? Me. Please. They, they, they were just, you know, they probably smoked the dope that they had confiscated. I don't know. I mean, say this about me. And he said, now you gotta, your son ought to be put away. Some of you still think that, but uh, that's, that's beyond the point. Aren't you glad bad people get into heaven because of Christ? But you don't get there because you're bad. You don't get there because you're good. You get there because of Jesus Christ. Now, how can a bad person at the last moment, how can a good person at the last moment, how can any of us get into heaven? It's all through Christ. Simply him. Here's a question. What did the thief do? In those statements that we read, that you, you look down at right now, and your passage just open, what did he do when he says, hey, be quiet. Don't you fear God, seeing you are in the same condemnation? We indeed justly, for we receive the due reward. But this man is... What is he saying there that made it possible for Christ to say consistently with what he's preached that you need to repent of your sins and to believe on me? Here, well, let me show you. Let me show you what the thief did. The thief took ownership of his own sins. We deserve to be here. That is, I am guilty. I am a sinner. Okay? He recognized Jesus is pure and innocent and did not go on the cross for his own sins. We deserve to be here. We have sinned, not him. And by the way, this is a truism. Jesus did not sin ever in his life. He should not have been on this cross he had no, done no sin, nothing wrong to deserve to be on the cross. But he went to pay for sins, not his own, whose? Let's make that more personal. Mine, yours, us. Including the thief sitting next to him, or hanging next to him. He calls upon Jesus to be the one to remember him in the kingdom. Doesn't call upon Jesus plus his church member, temple membership. Doesn't call upon Jesus plus his good deeds. You, you remember me. You, please, you. I'm relying totally upon you to get me into heaven. And he willingly, without shame, like Christ said in Matthew 10, he willingly says you in a public arena. He's done everything that the rest of the scripture says he need to do. Repent of your sins, confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and call upon him to be your Savior. He's done it. He prayed, quote-unquote, the sinner's prayer. And Jesus Christ gives to him, that day, salvation. You know, it is so simple and so easy that it can be prayed at any place, any time. The only thought that runs through my mind is, why would you wait until the very end if you know better? Why wouldn't you call upon Christ today? Because you never know when you're going to die. Now this man, he had a real good knowledge he was dying that day. You don't. I don't. We don't know if it's this week. We don't have a death sentence on us. We don't have a date with an executioner. He did. So he had a little bit up on us. 
since we don't know when it could happen that our last breath might be taken, that all of a sudden there's a heart attack, there's an accident, there's something that goes awry. We don't know. But we, if we know that we can only get into heaven through Jesus Christ, why would you wait? Why would you wait until your last moments? I've told you before about one of my friends. I'd just gotten saved, 16 years old. Scott Meyer, one of my best friends that I hung around with and drove around with, that we did lots of stuff. I started, you know, I was just a brand new Christian, 16 years old. I didn't know any better. I thought we should share this with everybody. Tell them how I got born again. Tell them how, how you know, I didn't know that, that for in some Christian circles, you don't talk. You don't share your faith. I just thought, well, if I, I'm going to heaven, I want everybody to know what, that they're going too. So I started talking to the friend, talking to Scott. We're driving through piers one day, and as we're going through town, you know, we're driving along, and I said, well, you need to get saved. You need to get born again. And he says, see those old people going to church? And the church was there in the center of town on a little bit of a hill. He says, I'll wait until I'm that age, then I'll get born again. Just weeks after that, Scott was driving down the road. There was a hill that, was, that he was coming up on the crest of the hill, and he tr- got around the tractor pulling a hay wagon, and he didn't realize that coming up the hill, just over the horizon, was a truck. And he couldn't pull off, couldn't go anywhere. He was going too fast when the truck got up, and he went right underneath the truck. And the, the box of the truck scraped right across the hood of his car, took out everything from the hood of the car level all the way to the back of his car. Instantly he entered into eternity. 16 years old. Thought he had plenty of time. That was it. We just don't know. But you do know this. You know from what you're hearing this moment, Jesus is the way of salvation. There is none other. It is so simple. You repent of your sins. You confess that he is Lord, that he is ruler, that he is the innocent one. You realize he died for your sins. You call upon him to be your savior. Remember me. Remember me. It's not me. It's not my church. It's not going to church. It's you. And you make that prayer, and whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be So simple. So simple. Can I wrap up with this thought? This is an important thought. This story not only shows how we get into heaven. This story not only shows grace and and forgiveness, but this statement of his shows you and me who are born again how to be an effective witness. To be an effective witness, you have to look at what Jesus did. In front of this man, while he's on the cross, here's Jesus providing us an example, 1 Peter chapter 2. We already read it, saying, here's an example of how we respond. What kind of witness can you be? How do you respond? There is no complaining. There isn't whining about his difficulty. He isn't angry with God. He's not portraying any type of reaction that would would be, get me out of here, anger, guile, lying. He is acting with integrity. In the difficult moment of his life, the most difficult moment of his life, there's no attack upon the Father. There's no attack upon other people. He is in the moment of this vile situation showing a spirit of concern and kindness and exalting God Almighty with holiness, with righteousness, with love and compassion. Because that's the only witness that we know of this man had. The words and actions of Jesus Christ while on the cross. He might be, that might be for some of you. 
You know, the, the only witness you can give to some people is what they see at work when, a, when you have a bad day. What relatives see in you when things go wrong. How you react when you get some bad news. That may be the biggest, most impacting witness that will ever be in their life. How do you respond? How do you act as a teenager at school? And the classmates, you know, they hear you go to church, but how do you act? How do you respond? How do you treat others? How do you talk about others who do you wrong? How do you talk about the authorities who may mistreat you? This is effective witnessing. Being able to forgive, being able to reach out. The two gentlemen I have here, Michael Carlucci and Walt Everett, their lives came together. Carlucci, in an accidental situation, killed Everett's 24-year-old son. It was a gun shooting. It was an accidental thing, but it happened. For a year, the trial is going on. Everett said, I hated the man. I hated him. He wasn't careful, he was careless, and as a result, my son is dead. My 24-year-old son, just in getting into the prime of his life, I hated him. I wanted him dead. I wanted him to be gone. I wanted his existence to be taken out and my son restored. He said it was horrible. Horrible, horrible, horrible. The trial comes up, it's there, and he goes. Can't stay in the same courtroom when they bring the man in. But he forced himself to go back. The man is sentenced. He's going to go to jail for a few years. You know, accidental death. So Everett realizes, my hatred is just consuming me. So he writes a letter. One letter leads to another letter, leads to another letter, leads to another letter. Finally he visits. He sees the man face to face. He said it was so hard to even look at the man in his face. But God wanted me to do this. I needed to do this. I needed to find peace in my own heart. So I visited with him, and then I went back and visited a few more times. He says, after a number of visits, he said, finally I was able to say to the man, I'm praying for you. He says, then after a few more visits, he said, I finally was able to say the words. It took me a long time, but I was finally able to say, I forgive you. Though that man, every time I visited, he said, he asked me for forgiveness. I could never say, I do. I finally said, I forgive you. And then he said, I went back and we started a Bible study. Carlucci got saved. And then when he got out and paroled, Everett helped him find a job. They continued the Bible study. They started sharing their story. And wherever they shared their story, more people got saved. Does God use forgiveness when it's extended? Is it easy? It's not easy to forgive the person who molested you when you were a child or your children. It's not easy to forgive somebody who deserted your family, a parent a grandparent. It's not easy to forgive that person that introduced into your family 
drugs to your kids. It's not easy. It's not easy to forgive those siblings who did you wrong at the death of your parents. It's not easy to forgive somebody who cost you your job, a place on the team. It's not easy. It's biblical. It makes a difference. Jesus is hanging on the cross to say, this wasn't easy for me to give you forgiveness, but I give it. And I'll give it to you if you call upon me. If you ask me to apply it to your account, I will. Children, those of you who called upon me, I want you to act like me. In the middle of your difficulties, I want you to forgive. I want you to be gracious. I want you to act like me and do what's right. Talk graciously. Speak patiently. Share the truth. Drop the revenge. Drop the gossip. Drop the anger. I want you to portray what I portray. It's never going to happen in our lives. It's never going to happen unless you and I be and live at the foot of the cross. 